Hey, everybody. Scott Malcolm here from Money Mechanics. Just a quick message to say any information that we share during this podcast is general information only. Please do not act on that information without considering the appropriateness towards your specific needs and outcomes. Ideally, we suggest that you go and meet with a financial planner and get personal advice. Hi folks, Scott Malcolm here from Money Mechanics and welcome along to another episode of Looking Under the Hood where we are unpacking the money stuff. I often talk to people about the financial system or the system that we're born into and a big part of that is actually a bit of the legal framework, how the system works. It's a lot of legislation and, and legal elements based around that. Today, we're talking about family law and, and relationships because money and relationships can be such a loaded topic. We often find that people have different uh, habits, attitudes, behaviors when it comes to the money side of things. And then as we uh, fall in love or in lust and uh, create relationships, we start to go on a financial journey with another human being. And often that can either keep growing and keep going, or sometimes it can go down another path where you're trying to then divide assets or, or split things up. And so today I've invited Casey Fox along from Farry Jesenian Dunn, who is a specialist family lawyer. What I love about Casey's approach is that it is a collaborative approach. So um, welcome along, Casey. Thanks for having me, Scott. What are some of your early memories around money? A happy memory from, from childhood or from when your, your younger self that you recall? I grew up in Alice Springs, so little small town area. And I guess some of the early memories for me are getting, you know, 50 cents from my mum, being able to walk around to the corner shop and they had one cent lollies. So you felt like you were rich when you had 50 cents that so you could go and get a whole bunch of one cent lollies. So that concept of money, that feeling like you had a lot, even if you really didn't, I think that was a good start. And that's bringing back memories for me as well. I remember going yeah, to the, the tuck shop or whatever at, at school. and Back when we had one and two cent coins too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Before they, uh, they scrapped those. Thanks for being here today. And I really wanted to talk not just about the the divorce or the family law and the the splitting things up, but just, I guess, give people some insights into how they can, I guess, manage relationship stuff and the money stuff as well. So what are some of the things that you've seen in your working life that, I guess, when it comes to separation, how can people manage that in a, a positive way? I guess we've been going through COVID and, I mean, my partner and I have joked about we both travel a lot. I, I bounce between Canberra and Melbourne and so we literally do probably spend half our lives apart. And so lockdown one, we we ended up seeing a lot more time with each other. We sort of had a bit of a chuckle at the start going, oh, well, this is either going to make or break us. But I guess in, in seriousness, like if people have discovered their their partner is no longer the, the one for them, what are some of the, the things that they can be thinking about to make the process, I guess, as smooth as possible? I think the first thing is to get good advice and get good advice early before you start taking any steps. I think a lot of people are scared that if they go to a lawyer, that then means they're going to go to court. That's not the case. You know, the majority of family law disputes um, or separations are settled by consent. 
but to be able to make the right decisions and right make the smart decisions following a separation, you need to get the advice first. Often people will come to me after they've already taken a number of steps and sometimes that can limit their choices going forward. And so for some people, it's getting advice before you separate or if you are contemplating separation or immediately after separation, you can get confidential advice from a lawyer about where to next and how do we keep this amicable, if at all possible, particularly if they've got kids. Mm, Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a big one because I've often seen clients that have spoken to friends and so they, oh yes, my friend went through this or they, I don't know if they've re-relationshiped or what are the processes? What do people need to to think about in that regard? And so they sort of give them tips and things around that, but it can often, again, as you say, send them down one direction that might not be the, the right path for them. Yeah, particularly if they speak to people who've had a messy divorce, for example, that have been involved in litigation, you know, there are certain steps that someone might take if they're in a litigation mode where you wouldn't do those things if you're trying to have an amicable separation. And often if you're talking to someone who's been through the process, you're only hearing it through their lens and what happened in their matter. And something that happened in their matter might be completely inappropriate in your matter. And it's not just lawyers you should seek advice from. You know, often we talk to people about getting some um, relationship counselling if they want to see if repairing the relationship is possible or individual counselling just to see where they're at and how to have that difficult conversation about the relationship being over because you certainly don't want to break that to someone by way of a letter from a lawyer. That's a bad way to start. Is it possible to do it yourself? What's the actual process? We've got marriage equality now in in Australia and um, that's often a bit of a loaded thing because different states have, I guess, different opinions when it comes to how relationships are started and and when you, uh, is this the right terminology, create a bode together or move in together. Well, one of the big advantages with marriage equality um, for same-sex couples now is if they're married, they're treated like every other married couple, so they come under the Family Law Act, which is federal legislation. Once you're married, you're in under the Family Law Act, so it makes things a lot smoother and easier to give advice. Now, de facto couples still are under the federal legislation as well, but there are some differences and you do have to look more at how long people have lived together, are they living in the same house or not, and with COVID that's become a bit more complicated. But essentially the things that people need to think about in terms of if they're about to separate is getting advice If they're amicable, they can then have the negotiations between the two of them. We call them kitchen table negotiations, basically. If the two of you can sit down and work out a deal, that's great. The next important step is then formalising that deal. And so usually that's done by way of consent orders that are made by the family court. Both parties will sign the paperwork. The paperwork goes to court, but the people don't. So it's effectively done on the papers. The reason it's important to formalise it is firstly, for example, if you're transferring assets like a house or a car, you'll get a stamp duty exemption when you file consent orders, whereas you won't necessarily get that if you don't have the consent orders. But from the family law point of view, the important thing with having your deal formalised is making sure it's final and the other person can't change their mind later. So say you have a deal today and in six months' time you win the lottery 
that might incentivize someone to think, oh, I might want to reopen that. Whereas if you've got final consent orders, it's very hard to change those arrangements once they're in place. Yeah, definitely. And we do a lot of work with, again, in collaboration with family lawyers like yourself to give people some comfort and certainty around, well, okay, financially, you're going to be okay. And so the, the grieving process is obviously still there. You've got to go through all the emotional elements and, and work through that, even if it is sort of fairly early on. I've spoken to a lot of clients who have sort of come into my office and said, oh, look, my partner doesn't know about this yet, but will I be okay? What do I need to think about? And so are there any hard and fast rules that the family court look at in regards to splitting of assets and things like that? I assume that children also play a part in that effect as well. Yeah, generally, both for married and de facto couples, the court essentially has a four-stage process. So the first stage is identify the assets. So that's everything, whether it's in people's sole names, joint names, cars, houses, real estate, shares and superannuation and anything else you can think of that each of you own and including whether you had it at the start of the relationship or bought it during the relationship. So that's stage one, identify what there is essentially. Stage two is look at the contributions you've each made to those assets and to the relationship. So those can be financial contributions, someone had a house at the beginning of the relationship, someone received an inheritance during the relationship they can also be non-financial contributions like who stayed at home caring for the kids. Did someone physically renovate the property, adding a contribution but isn't necessarily financial? The third stage is looking at your future circumstances. So those are each of your income and earning capacities and things like care of children and health. And the fourth stage is sort of a, a, the court stands back and says, based on all the information, what is a fair settlement? And so, for example, there might be an adjustment to one party if, say, they had a house at the start of the relationship, but there might then be an adjustment to the other party if, for example, they were the stay-at-home mum and don't have the same income and earning capacity going forward. So there's no hard and fast rule in terms of, you know, 50-50 or you get to automatically keep what you had at the start. It's all based on those four steps. And the court considers those four steps also in the context of how long your relationship is. So you're more likely to get credit for having a house at the start if you've had a five-year relationship versus a 30-year relationship, for example. Especially the superannuation thing is really important. I do a lot of stuff with public servants and public sector super schemes and valuation of those defined benefit super schemes. So if you're in the PSS defined benefit, if you're in the, the Commonwealth super scheme, which is the older defined benefit, or if you're in any, any of the military super schemes as well, they actually have a, a greater value than just your standard accumulation scheme. So I often come across clients who aren't aware of that, or if their partner had it, they say, oh, we're just going to leave the superannuation out of the picture. But it's really important to get the, the balance right at the end of the day. Yeah, particularly with the CSS, because the CSS can be worth a whole lot more in family law terms than it is on the member statement. And if you are going to do a super split, it's actually mandatory that you have to get evaluation now to provide to the court before the court will split that super. So it's about having all of the information, so knowing what something's worth, but also if you are going to go down the path of doing a super split, it's mandatory to get evaluation anyway. So again, in, in that regard, if partners do become a little bit not engaged in the process or don't want to provide information, there's obviously a legal path that then can be instigated in that regard to get that information and, and make that happen. Is that a 
a fairly yeah. easy process? Yeah. yeah, so with superannuation, each of them have a form. It's called a Form 6. And basically, as a spouse or de facto partner, you can fill that out. You pay a fee to the fund and then they provide you information about your partner's superannuation. Again, you don't always have to go down that path, but if you're having problems getting that information from your partner, that is one path that's available. And if you're in the court process, you have other options to get information, but court is a last resort, basically. I'm glad that you you say that. No, no, that's why I sort of uh, like your approach, as I said earlier. If it is a legal marriage, it, it's not that easy just to dissolve it, is it? You can't just sort of rock into court and go, right, I'm just going to sign a piece of paper and uh, dissolve the relationship. There's, there's timeframes around that. So what, what are those again? There is. So if you're married and you're doing a property settlement, you can do that as quickly as you want to do it. So if you separated in March, you could have final orders made by the court in April, really. The key thing that takes time is actually applying for the divorce. So you've got to be separated for a year and a day before you can apply for a divorce. Also, once you divorce, the time starts ticking on when you can have a property settlement. So generally what we recommend is doing the property settlement first and the divorce later. And with the divorce, if you do it jointly, you can file it online now and you don't physically have to go to court. So the divorce itself, once you've done the property settlement, um, the divorce can actually be fairly straightforward, um, but it's just waiting that 12 months and a day. And for de facto couples, they don't have to get a divorce, obviously, but they also have a time frame. They have to have their property settlement formalised within two years of their separation. So again, we focus on doing the property settlement as early as we can. Closer to the date of separation makes things easier. I have had matters where parties were separated for 10 years and then they try to sort out their property settlement and it can make it much more complicated, um, particularly if there are repartners or new kids, new property. So the sooner people can work out their property settlement, the better. Yeah, and I think it's that nice ability to exit clean and clear and then, again, respectfully move on and hopefully try and retain that, uh, at least some sort of nice relationship dynamic. And especially if there's kids involved as well, I, I often see that that's sort of the, the harder part if you're then co-parenting with someone longer term. And the thing is, if you go down the court road, the courts are seriously underfunded and understaffed at the moment. And so the delays are huge. If you commenced a matter in the Federal Circuit Court or the Family Court today, you might not get to a final hearing for 18 months to two years. And then even if you have that final hearing, often the judges need to go away and think about it before they deliver a decision. So it's a very long, expensive process. Hence, we try a whole range of different alternate dispute resolution methods before we go down the court path. I mean, in some cases, unfortunately, you might have something urgent or it's inevitable you're going to end up in court. But in the majority of cases, we can try and reach an agreement outside of court and it will be a lot quicker and cheaper than going down the court path. 
Yeah, fantastic. And, and definitely I've uh, met a couple of uh, barristers, not to be confused with uh, baristas, <laughs> but uh, sorry, I shouldn't make those uh, horrid jokes. But um, yeah, barristers in the family law space often earn a, a truck ton of money, but it is again around that case law stuff, which is which is quite fascinating. I think it's a, the fascinating thing around the system is that it's been there, it's created, it's there to sort of help uh, protect us as much as sort of uh, contain us, so to speak. So going through that process, obviously, we talked about the children's side of things is different courts that deal with that. So you've got the property side, you've got the, the physical divorce elements, and then obviously there's parenting and th- those agreements that come through. So th- they're not separate courts, are they? They're, they're separate processes to a degree, though. Is that right? Yeah, it depends. So we've got the Federal Circuit Court and the Family Court both deal with family law matters. Essentially, the Family Court do the bigger, more complicated ones, and the Federal Circuit Court do the majority of the cases. So if you're going to court, you can go about property and kids at the same time, or you could do them separately. So for example, you might have an agreement on the arrangements for the children, which you do via consent orders, but you can't agree on the property. And so then you make an application to the court about property. Essentially, both paths, whether you're going down the children's path or the property path, the court want to see you try and reach an agreement. And so even after you've filed, they're going to make you attend essentially a mediation, whether it's on property or kids, to see if you can reach agreement because they don't want everyone having to go to a final hearing. They want people to reach an agreement. And sometimes that only happens after you've commenced proceedings and getting to that formal mediation, getting everyone round a table. But fortunately, the court statistics say that only about 5% of matters that start in court go all the way through. Most of them still settle. Rolling through that, I guess divorce relationship stats are, are fairly high these days around number of people who, who get divorced and, and relationships don't work. We watch too much American TV, so people always talk about uh, prenups, um, yep. but, but Australia doesn't have that, do they? We, we've got a, a different arrangement that we've got if you want to protect yourself in, in future relationships. And often I see that where clients have been through a divorce before or, or had to separate asset that they go, oh, I don't want to have to go through that, that process again. What we call them in Australia is binding financial agreements. And you can do one both for de facto relationships and for marriage. And you can do them before the relationship. So say for a de facto relationship before you move in together. You can actually also do them during the relationship. So if you've lived together for two years or you were married a year ago, you can still actually do one of these agreements. And the whole idea of the agreement is just to set out that if you do separate in the future, how are your assets going to be divided? Unlike, you know, where you see on American TV shows, they have things like if you cheat, you get nothing. Those are not the sort of ones we have. We generally have ones that will say whoever had this asset at the start will keep it going through or if one party gets an inheritance, they'll keep that. Or it might be that we draft an agreement that says whoever's name the property is in, they'll keep the property. It's like having an insurance policy against your house burning down. You obviously hope that never happens, but you've got it there just in case and so that you can avoid going through the court system where you could be in there for two years and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, exactly. And I think 
um, again, you don't want to be rolling up to date number two and uh, saying, oh, by the way, here's my uh, BFA, please uh, please sign here. Um, go and get yourself some legal advice. Uh, it's good to know that it can happen after the event. But look, I find, I guess, honest, open conversations are really important. I mean, I talk to my, my partner and I do probably joke a little bit more than we probably need to about these things. But when we first got together, we did talk about the assets that we had prior to the relationship. And then we also talk about sort of assets in the trust, so to speak, which are assets of our relationship. And so we often joke, oh, well, that's in the trust. That's the thing that we're going to be fighting over. Um, and I've put a few people in that trust as well, including uh, my partner's nan, because I don't have any grandparents anymore. So I'm like, no, nan's in the trust. <laughs> <laughs> I think, again, if you if you have these light conversations with your partner, it, it can actually mitigate some of the risk as well in that you, you're probably having more open, honest conversations about the money stuff, and you're probably having more honest, open uh, relationship conversations as, as well, potentially. Yeah, well, often what you see with a couple who are going through a messy divorce, for example, it's because they have very different thoughts on what's fair because they've never talked about it during their relationship. So they've never said, well, if we were to separate, what do you think is fair? And they only then have that conversation after they've separated and that's when they find out, oh, we have very different ideas about what we think is fair. And so having a conversation, as you said, potentially not on the second date, but, uh, you know, during the relationship about, well, what do you have? What do I have? And if this happened in the future, what do you think is fair? And would that change if we had children? Or, you know, would that change if we won the lottery or received an inheritance? And so at least if, even if you're not going down the path of a binding financial agreement, if you're at least having these discussions, you alerted to the fact much earlier on if you have very different opinions about these things. Casey, great to have had you along. Thank you so much for joining me today. I will be adding your bio and all your uh, social media uh, contacts as well uh, to the show notes. But I think you're a, a bit of an Insta fan as, as I am. Uh, I often see you posting some cool, funky things uh, on there uh, on the gram. So, um, yeah. Mostly my dogs. Yeah, they're adorable. So that's a, that's, that's a good <laughs> thing. But um, look, thanks so much for coming along. Really appreciate your time, as I say. And yeah, look, hopefully people have gotten some uh, good uh, little kernels out of the discussion we've had today. So thanks for coming. Great. Thanks, Scott.